internet friends and welcome to love hate relationship an opinionated podcast for opinionated people i'm andy bowell and i'm alex ruiz and as always we are here to brighten your day anger your soul and of course tell you our dear listeners how to live your lives in that order and andy i'm just realizing now that that interest spiel I feel like if I'm using a plurality of listeners, you know, I should probably list it as your lives. So now, in addition to talking about how we do the podcast on the podcast, I'm now copy editing my own text that we have used since before episode one on the podcast while we're recording, which says something about who I am as a person. (laughs) We've never... We've never promised we were qualified in any way, shape, or form. Not only just when it comes to giving advice, but you know, I... oh no, yeah, no, we we we've never said we're qualified at all. We've actively <laughs> said we are unqualified. I think it. Uh, I think singular life does. Uh, let's just let's. It, it, it's a personal touch. That's why. <laughs> mm. It's funny because I, I I've. I've been to a number of like Q and A's with poets and authors and even one or two with like screenwriters. And it's always amusing to me when they're doing a Q and A and either one of, one of two things happens. Sometimes both of these things happen. One of them is something will, someone will ask about something of theirs that has come out forever ago and they'll be like, yeah, if I could go back and redo that, I would redo all of that. The fact that it's published and I can't edit it is the only thing that's keeping me from going back and editing it. Mm. And the other thing is people who have accomplished incredible feats, done so much work, just, you know, written magnificent opuses going, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. I still don't like anything I, <laughs> I write. Like, it's terrible. I have I shouldn't be doing this at all. I'm waiting for everybody to catch up to the fact that I've been scamming them for this many decades. Right, imposter syndrome. Yeah, it's it's charming in its own way, you know. I mean, I, I think it gets frustrating after a while, but it's yeah, charming. I was going to say. I mean, I suppose <laughs> it's an interesting thing about art that I really have not stopped to consider because we record these ahead of time, and I. I usually do a round or two of editing, but then, uh, I mean, I, I would probably re-edit and polish and polish and polish again some of our older episodes, but they're out there, and I'm not going to uh, sacrifice the views we've already gotten just to cut out some more of us going, um, or, or saying something in a, in a funny manner. Well, in podcasting, it's weird because people will, you know, if you if you get into enough podcasts that have, you know, 200 plus episodes, three, four, 500 episodes, you know, they're out there. And a lot of those people will be like, you know, uh, we don't actually want you to listen to our early episodes because those are all garbage and we've gotten much better as we've gone <laughs> along. And it really took until episode... 200 some for us to really know get our footing down you know this is episode 23 for us and uh, i I don't know i hope that on episode 200 (laughs) we'll be better at this but at the same time eh? Eh? like 
I'm not. I recently went back and listened to all of our old episodes, and I'm not ashamed of them in any way. I'm just kind of like, oh, hey, that was before I figured out that I needed to do this, or that was before we realized that, you know, I uh, we need to make this adjustment to how we do our notes or how we structure our discussions or something about our questions. I don't know, man. Well, like you, like you said, uh, it's charming. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I just hope that if I end up with that stuff that killed Robert, Roger Ebert, that they can construct a voice box from my own actual voice, like they were looking to do for him oh until he actually passed away. No joke. I was just thinking the other day about, like, what steps would I need to take in my own life to become the next Roger Ebert? And I think the proliferation of critics on youtube has really made that a tall task i think there would need to be a lot more academic backing to anyone who wanted to become like the de facto movie critic like he was it's also horrifying by the way i had no idea they were trying to like make a a a voice box out of ebert's sound bites yeah, no, like straight up, he had he when he got sick, they had to they had to basically do this surgery to remove most of his jaw and like larynx and a lot of that stuff, so he couldn't speak. He physically could not speak, and he had like one of those Stephen Hawking style voice box things. Those last like ten years of Roger Ebert interview uh, reviews, like he couldn't speak while he was doing them. Wow. He was still writing, and Lord knows he was a prolific writer. Sure. But, um, yeah, apparently they were working on taking all the episodes of, you know, Ebert, Siskel and Ebert Presents and all of that stuff and using his sound clips to basically create a version of that technology with his actual voice. And he died before they could finish it. Huh. Wow. And he had, you know, they had two decades to work with. Yeah, totally. So, Yeah. So, you want to be the next Roger <laughs> I, I toyed with the uh, idea of it, sure. Uh, he, the thing is, he was he was working in a different time, you right. know. Movie criticism meant something different back then. Exactly. You know, it's, like, it's like how I always had the dream. I always wanted to write for Rolling Stone. I wanted to be a music journalist for Rolling Stone. But writing for Rolling Stone does not mean the same thing now as it did in even in the 90s. No, not you know, at being all. Being a music critic... Being a music critic in that same way doesn't mean the same thing. I can I can publish music criticism right now. I can make a blog and start doing it up anytime that I want. But eh, how many people are going to read that? I can submit music criticism to legitimate sources. And those opportunities are there. But I'm not going to be Rob Sheffield, you know? Like... <laughs> Rob Sheffield is still Rob Sheffield, and when Rob Sheffield is gone, there goes that generation. Yeah. No, it's true. You know, I've thought about it before. Everyone is a producer nowadays. I mean, look at us. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't outstandingly difficult just to make this very show. Yeah. I mean, not that much equipment. A lot of equipment we already had. You know, I, I got a $20 microphone for Christmas, used a bunch of software we already had. We pay for hosting. Yeah. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos, and here we are. And actually, speaking of, you know, people 
taking their taking their own personal initiative uh, in order to get artistic work out there free and available and democratized and I'm I'm making this transition way more awkward than it should be because it should be fairly smooth. The connection is obvious. Do you want to get into our first topic, Andy? Yeah, Alex. Um, so so what what do you love today on Love Hate Relationship? <laughs> okay. Oh God, that was the most canned ass bullshit. <laughs> if it weren't for if it weren't for the fact that like. It's kind of funny to see us ramble sometimes. Uh, I, I would be like, let's let's do a take two of that. But no, we're going to plow forward. So we'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. All of you out there, this is love-hate relationship. We do three segments. Uh, first segment, one of us discusses a topic that we love, something that we feel is making the world a better place uh, and that we think is worth your attention Maybe your admiration, you know, maybe just, you know, a nice little head nod and go, that's a cool thing that exists in the world. Thanks, Alex and Andy, for bringing it to my attention. Section two, we talk about a hate, something we despise, something we loathe, something we think the world would be better off without. And then the third section, we take a question from you regarding your relationships, and we try and fix them. And spoiler alert, we rarely fix them. Most of the time, we tell you shit that you should already know, but... We have fun doing it. So, first topic, Andy. I'm going to intro the way that I like to intro on a regular basis and start off by asking you a simple question. Or actually, this is kind of two questions, but I'm going to phrase it as one. Okay. I want you to, if possible, plumb the depths of your memory, remember your education, remember, you know, high school, middle school, college, your gen eds, whatever it was. And I want you to name one quote-unquote classic book from the canon of literature that you tried to read and you just couldn't get through? I guess it is just one question. I have something right on the tip of my mind when you ask me this, and it's honestly a little embarrassing to talk about. I feel like I'm about to lose some major uh, nerd cred here. But I have never been able to get through The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the book. I dearly love the world. The Hobbit is the first book I ever read, like all the way through myself, like the first real book. It is a deeply beloved. It is one of my favorite books for deeply personal reasons. And yet, I have never been able to read through The Fellowship of the Ring. And by proxy, The Two Towers and Return of the King. That is fascinating. Okay, so actually, I have no shade to throw on that whatsoever. Because I very similarly, I managed to read through The Hobbit, and I loved it. The Hobbit was very accessible and very, very fun to read for me. I remember trying to read Fellowship of the Ring. And I did successfully complete the Fellowship of the Ring, but it took me six months. I know it took me six months because I checked it out from the library, <laughs> and I had to keep renewing it every three weeks. And I get and and they had multiple copies. There wasn't an issue. Like I didn't. I never had a hold on it or had to return it or anything. But like it took me six months to finish the Fellowship of the Ring. I'm a slow reader. It might be the only book that has ever taken me that long to read all the way through 
And uh, with the exception maybe of like the complete works of William Shakespeare, which in fairness is 30 some odd plays, a whole two epic poems, a bunch of shorter poems, like, and, and I tried to start the two towers and I just quit. I literally quit pages into it because I just went, I can't slog through this anymore. I can't do it. It's not, this one's not for me. I don't know what it is. So I get that. And, and you know what? I am actually with you. I have her, I know multiple people who have told me, I love The Hobbit. I've read through The Hobbit multiple times. I can't get through the actual Lord of the Rings books. So, but I appreciate you being like courageous enough to share that because I know your nerd card means a lot it to you. It does indeed. <laughs> and just to counterpoint that, um, even on top of my own admission about that same book, for me it was Moby Dick. I, I, I'm, I, I was an English major. I loved a lot, and I was highly... A, a big focus of my undergraduate education was the canon of English and American literature, of which Moby Dick is king. Uh, and anyone who is arguing otherwise academically, um, congratulations, you had a more progressive education than mine was. Uh, but I couldn't get through it. It was so boring. It was so dull. It was so tangentially. And uh, I finally was able to get through it, but I was able to get through it in a very particular way. And that particular way is our love topic for today. And that is LibriVox. Hold your applause. No, I'm, I'm seriously, I, I'm very interested in this. I think it's a fascinating okay. service and I can't wait to hear like more about it. You, you bring me such gifts. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to dive right in then. So LibriVox, that's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X. Uh, is kind of a weird website slash database slash collective. Um, basically, it started in 2005 when Canadian writer Hugh McGuire on his personal blog kind of just sort of put it out as an idea. The This idea being a free digital library of public domain audiobooks read and uploaded and maintained by a network of volunteers. So I first discovered it around 2013 uh, as a smartphone app. Literally, I was just like browsing smartphone apps going, I kind of want to check out audiobooks. Like people tell me about audiobooks, but I don't want to go out and like buy one. Um, I'm sure they exist. You know, I've gotten banner ads for some and I keep seeing commercials for Audible. So let me try this out. And I found it in 2013 and I've been using it ever since. Every book on it is public domain. Uh, Every recording is read and recorded by a volunteer, screened and listened to by volunteer admins, uh, basically to ensure that it's clear language and correct to the source material, which are the only requirements for any recording being uploaded there. It has to be, you know, it it, it can't change any of the wording, uh, and it needs to be a clear recording, not terribly staticky or anything like that, uh, which I'll get into a little bit more later as one of the, like, couple of criticisms people have about it. Okay. But after that, it's made available... To for anyone uh, to just download and listen to for free. They also have a website, LibriVox.org, spelled exactly the way that I said before. iOS, Android, Windows Phone, whatever, whatever you use, this app is available. For me personally, I don't generally listen to many contemporary audiobooks, mainly for cost reasons. Uh, they frequently cost as much or more than hardcovers, 20 to $30 plus per book. So... 
Instead, I put my my reading energy, my day-to-day like physical reading energy into reading contemporary. Uh, but LibriVox has been a really great way for me to fill in my back catalog of older books that I never got around to back in the day. So in my specific case, I tried multiple occasions to read all of Moby Dick. And the only way I was ever successfully able to do so is via a specific version that was on LibriVox, read by someone named Stuart Wills. I don't know who Stuart Wills is. He has multiple books on LibriVox, and his reading of Moby Dick is incredible. It took me a month to get through, but it was engaging, it was excellent, Uh, he does voices for the characters, he's very clear in speech, his delivery is dramatic when it needs to be dramatic and funny when it needs to be funny, and... I listened to the whole thing, all of Moby Dick, basically while I was doing other crap. While I was cooking, while I was driving, while I was vacuuming, while while I was doing whatever else. And doing that, I've similarly been able to get through the complete Sherlock Holmes a couple of times. Most of uh, Frank Baum's uh, Oz books. Stuff by Jane Austen, Thomas Paine, Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. The only way I ever got through that novel <laughs> was via was via LibriVox. And I'm God, a whole section on Napoleon for no reason. Uh, ben Franklin, uh, the various Bronte sisters, Dickens, Karl Marx, Adam Smith. Uh, it's real, real fun to debate with uh, libertarians who want to talk to me about capitalism and I gotta start quoting Adam Smith at them because I've read Wealth of Nations or rather I listened to Wealth of Nations uh that was purely a me thing I don't recommend listening to all of Wealth of Nations because it's kind of dry but I did it via audiobook Mark Twain H.G. Wells a whole lot more like all these classics of literature all this stuff that you can honestly like you can buy them for 50 cents at any bookstore any used bookstore if you have a kindle you can get these books for free. They are available for free. But something about listening to them in this capacity is something I was able to stomach. Sure. And I don't know. There was something... And this might be a personal thing. I know there are people out there who are not into audiobooks, and I don't shape that. But this was the way that I managed to fill out a huge back catalog. Uh, just just a giant gaping hole where... I, I'm fairly well read, but... There's things I never got to, or never got through, or I don't want to put my attention into. And this was always, a this this has since 2013 been a great way for me to fill in those gaps. So I was really interested in kind of bringing attention to it here. Yeah. And I sense you have thoughts. No, I, and, I, and I thank you for bringing it here. I, I like this thing for a whole lot of different ways. And to just pick a point and, and dive into it, it makes sense to me why you find this enjoyable and why anybody could find this enjoyable you know especially in the modern era you know we we talked way back in the episode where i talked about the mcelroy brothers and their podcast empire like this medium this medium of listening to things is very successful right now it is it is very popular it is something people do and i feel like audiobooks are more akin to even podcasts than say talk radio is and at least in some cases at least if it's more like more story based more fictional based i i I sense a 
I feel like there is a very key connection there. And, you know, some people just don't like to listen to the radio. Some people don't like to listen to music, but still want to be able to hear something. And that's where I think audiobooks or podcasting really comes in. You know, our friend, um, our dear friend, Justin, hey, Justin, buddy, uh, he's told me that he, he listened to all of the Game of Thrones books. Instead of reading them, he he made it the thing he would listen to on his commute to and from work. And it took him a while to get through the five that are published, but he was able to catch up to, at what was that point before where the show was, that way. And thinking back to my own experiences, like, I can remember several road trip vacations in the car with you know, everyone packed into a van and we didn't listen to music. We listened to Stephen Fry read all of the Harry Potter books. Oh, I love those yeah, versions. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's enjoyable. You know, you, you, you talked about how Stuart Wills in reading Moby Dick would actually like do voices and, and, you know, have tonality and create mood with the reading of the book. And I love that so much. I love the performance aspect of it, but I also think it's key to making these older, intimidating, less accessible works relatable and enjoyable and chewable. (laughs) No, I, that's exactly true. I mean, it's, if you, okay. Going back to your example, fellowship of the ring. I think the biggest difference, honestly, between Fellowship and The Hobbit, um, I think there's two key differences there. One is Fellowship is much more concerned with giving you, as reader, background on the, like, history of Middle-earth. Background stories, tangents for these characters, going way deeper into that stuff than The Hobbit does. Hobbit does a little of that, but... Fellowship does it a ton. Would you say that's that's one fair difference? Oh, absolutely. Okay. The other difference is the prose itself in The Hobbit is way more straightforward. Yes, your characters still speak with a whole lot of the same little... Uh, like, the same cadence and diction that you expect from your, like, proto-medieval characters or whatever... But, you know, there's a whole lot more... In Fellowship, there's a whole lot more of your thines and vows and your sons of such and weird nicknames for random characters that don't make sense. Like, The Hobbit has way less of that than Fellowship does. It is way more prose-friendly. The Hobbit is. But reading it aloud doesn't eliminate that. But God, does it ever help. I mean... Even just talking about classics of English literature, like, it's so much easier. I'll even just say, like, it is so much easier to read a lot of Jane Austen with someone, you know, engaged in giving you the story than it is trying to sift through some very long, very unwieldy sentences. Yeah. Yeah. Dickens, Hugo, like... 
this is dense shit. Yeah, you know, uh, another contemporary to my own life example I can pull from, and I, I think it'll be similar for you, back in my junior year of high school for AP English Lit, the first book we had to read in mm. the year was Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, which he wrote... Like, as he was doing his clerk job way back in, in what, the 1700s or something? It is... Yeah, <laughs> and he was he was working for a customs house, and there's 70 pages about being in a goddamn customs right. house. Hawthorne is incredibly dense by today's standards, I, I feel like. And mm-hmm. I can remember in this class, like, for those of you... Uh, who, who who remember the Scarlet Letter, there's a moment where the villain of the book, Roger Chillingworth, is is seen for the first time in a crowd, and he is he is described as intimidating and misshapen. And somebody in our class, as we were discussing it, it, it might have been me, it probably was me, <laughs> uh, tried to say that, like, this guy, just as he is being described, reminds me of, like, the Joker, so picture Heath Ledger's Joker, Dark Knight had just came out, as like your mental proxy for this character. And you would think that even that alone, just imagine this character as the Joker would make the book interesting, and it couldn't. I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. And I, I, I yeah. bring this up I mean... to illustrate that like, the the mind's eye of the reader even even when it's something you're desperate to make more accessible or entertaining than it is you you come up with these tricks to do that you yourself can't always do it it's like how you can't tickle yourself yeah no absolutely and that makes and and that experience for you just needing to read something it, in that archaic language, in that archaic form of writing, I mean, it's a barrier. It's a legitimate barrier. There's a reason why kids say that a lot of those classics that are taught in high school and such are too difficult or or, or too dull or, too un- or they're unable to get into it. And a whole lot, it does a whole lot. It doesn't do everything. You do need to engage with some of this stuff in order to be able to pierce through it. I think just for me, it makes it easier. It makes it more palatable. It takes away part of that big, huge roadblock that never got addressed. I read that same Hawthorne book in AP English language. I remember that. I read it. I annotated it. I did the whole spiel. And I liked that book. And I liked it more when I listened to it later. Because I had to reread it in college for a class, and I just listened to it. Oh, wait, no, I didn't. I, no, I reread it for graduate school. Never mind. No, no, no. I, I, I'm confusing my, my undergrad and my graduate school. Gotcha. I reread it for graduate school. Gotcha, gotcha. But it was an easier experience. I read a lot of my graduate school work via this audiobook, via these audiobooks, because when they asked me to get something like that, I mean, a lot of that just ended up being convenience. You know, sure. again, like Justin reading the Game of Thrones books, it's sometimes a, a lot of this was a hell of a lot easier to get through. Just like I listened, I probably listened to the entirety of Ben Franklin's autobiography 
while I was cooking. Not even doing other stuff. Because I think I was listening to podcasts while I was driving and doing things like that. I strictly put that book on while I was cooking. And I probably finished it in like a couple of weeks. Sure. Just just in the time that I was like cooking and eating. Because I was living by myself at the time. Cooking and eating and washing up. So for this such and such amount of time every day, I was listening to the autobiography of Ben Franklin. And I finished it pretty quickly. And I still think about that book on a regular basis. That was a really affecting read for me. I've never physically touched a copy of the autobiography of Ben Franklin. I was assigned to read the autobiography of Ben Franklin in undergrad, and I didn't read it because I was too busy reading other more complicated things for other classes. (laughs) So I got a summary of it, and I did fine. Sorry, Dr. Jones. I don't think you're listening to this. I did not read the autobiography of Ben Franklin when I was supposed to. You're still one of the best teachers I ever had. I've, I apologize. I have since read it in audiobook format. I don't think you listen to my podcast, but... <laughs> really hoping that's not the case. That'll, that'll just make my... Eh. <laughs> I think she would laugh. I honestly think she would laugh. But, yeah, I mean, it's... And I and I want to get ready to move on from this topic, but it was such a liberate, not to pun, it was a liberating thing to be able to access this material in an inexpensive way. Audiobooks are stupidly cost prohibitive, sure. and I don't understand why. I do understand why, because, you know, that's hours of content, admittedly. You know, I... I I think it's Lisa Bloom who argues that the concept that we would bulk at paying $25 or $30 for a hardcover is insane given how many hours of enjoyment we can get out of a book. Okay, if you want to look at it that way, sure. It doesn't change the fact that I, I just can't always throw down 30 bucks for a hardcover or for an audiobook. This shit is free. Some of the readers, like, I, I, I kind of have some favorite readers on this platform, like, especially the ones who read certain things. There are admittedly terrible versions of Sun Books. Any of you who go on LibriVox and start looking for books, highly recommend check the ratings because there are some garbage recordings. Truly terrible. There's people with indiscernible accents. There's people who, there are people who end every sentence using this exact same phrasing. Like, I'm not shitting you. I tried to read a Sherlock Holmes novel by this one reader, and every sentence she would end just with this weird little sound, and I never understood why. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't handle it. And I just, and I literally just, like, listened to it for about three minutes, deleted that one, and then downloaded another one that had a higher rating. And I did. I, and I only chose hers because I was like, "Let me try this reader," because I've never read anything by this reader. The book's got a three. The book's got three stars. Okay, that's fine. And I listened to it, and I was like, "I see why you have three stars. I'm surprised you don't have fewer." And I went back to my five star recording, and I loved it. And your results may vary on some of these, but with a lot of them, especially the classics, like you have multiple options. Um, there's a dramatic reading of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula that's, like, their most downloaded book of all, I think, or second most downloaded, but it's, like, done with actors. The various characters are done by different people. They don't do a lot of books like that, but that's a really interesting first one. I actually have not listened to it. Um, I listened to the straightforward reading of Dracula by one reader, 
And I loved that. But at some point, I plan to download this dramatic reading that's super highly rated and go, all right, let's check this shit out. And it's, and that is getting me to reread Dracula. I reread very few books, Andrew. Very, very few books. Because there's too many new books out sure. there. If I haven't seen it, it's new to me. And this is something that's got me doing that. And you know, the last thing I'll say, I know you got one more talking point. What, the, what you just described, being able to pick and choose your listening experience... You can't do that with audiobooks. You know, maybe maybe if one is really popular, there will be two or three different re- recordings of it, but you know, in in the more corporate business side of it, like they record it once, that's the official audiobook recording, and if it happens to suck, then sorry. So, I I find that to be a stroke of brilliance by LibriVox. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are, there are two versions of the Harry Potter audiobooks. I know Stephen Fry did the first one, but apparently the second one is, like, hella popular, I've recently found out. All right. Well, so there you yeah, go. To check it out. But that's two options. Right. That's two options. The Harry Potter books are not yet in the public domain. And, that, and admittedly, that's, I've recommended this to some people, and as soon as I tell them, oh, it's only public domain audiobooks, a lot of people will balk and just be like, well, I'm not interested. I, I'm really more interested in reading contemporary books. That's fine. You can download Libby. Uh, Libby is uh, another app where you can type in your library card and any audiobooks that your library will have available, you can Ooh. check those out, download them to your phone. Oh, I recommend such it. Gifts. Yeah, absolutely. Such yeah. gifts you give me. <laughs> uh, I did not put Libby on this one. Um, not for any exclusionary reason. I like Libby. I've used it a couple of times for a handful of contemporary books. My only problem with Libby is if you ever want to listen to something super popular, um, people can. You only get it for two weeks, uh, and people can put a hold on it. So once your two weeks is up, you lose that book at least for however long it takes for your hold, your next hold to come back on. So unless it's either a short book or an unpopular book, you. Or you can get through it. You can be sure to get through it within two weeks. You're not. You might. You might get some big interruptions with that. That's the only complaint I've had with Libby. But I mean, as far as free audiobooks go, you got Lib. You got a library card. You can use Libby. I love. That's L I B B Y. Yeah, I love when the local library figures out ways to start getting people's interest back. We're going to talk about Canopy at some later point, but I just I, that really makes me happy as a kid who spent more weekends than i can remember at the library um so so sure what 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 do you what's the last word you want to have about librivox so the last point that i wanted to make is the fact that this is one of the very few cases i've ever seen of what appears to be an entire profitless entity there's no legal organization for librivox it's not an llc it's not an incorporated anything the app itself, the app that I mentioned, is the way that I discovered this thing. It has some visual banner ads, and they run occasional fundraisers. Uh, LibriVox, as a quote-unquote website or organization, uh, which is, re- again, really a loose, connect- loose conglomeration of volunteers, they'll run occasional fundraisers in order to cover their $5,000 a year hosting costs, which those banner ads also go towards. Uh, when they hit that $5,000 a year, they inc- they immediately shut it down and they encourage people to instead donate money to 
projects like things like Project Gutenberg and other literary nonprofits and and academic projects and things like that. You know, we we've never done a product endorsement on this on this show. I've never said I was opposed to doing a product endorsement. I have said I'd be opposed to doing like an immoral product endorsement, but if there was something that I legitimately loved enough, I, I would endorse it. But the fact is, this is the first thing akin to a product endorsement I think we've ever done, or that I've ever done, and it's a completely profitless entity. Everyone on this is a volunteer. Every recording, the bad ones and the good ones, are labors of love. The most, like, advertising I've ever seen done by any of... Like, the readers will occasionally be like, for more recordings, visit my website at blank, blank, blank dot org. And then they start reading the book. Like, that's the most advertisement I've ever seen anyone do. This is... It, we're so fucking cynical. <laughs> Everywhere. Everything is so goddamn cynical. All of the time. Everything feels so hopeless. For those of you, like, we are currently... The, the day that we are recording this, the Mueller report dropped earlier this mm, week. Yeah. And I had to, and I had to stop reading Twitter on day two and be like, I gotta let this sit because I am officially just reading the same garbage over and over and over again, and every take is bad, and it's so cynical. And here is one little thing, one little thing that exists on the fucking internet, on the internet, on the internet, you guys, where it's just people who really like books trying to make books more accessible to other people who like books for free. And they're all doing their best. And yes, some are better than others. And you, you listener, can pick and choose what you want to do. But everyone participating in this is doing it, at least as far as I can see. It is set up so that you have no choice but to participate in it altruistically. And I need that right now. Sure. I need I, I, I need this little speck of non-cynicism on the internet when we live so much of our lives on this internet. When you're listening to this podcast, you downloaded it off of the internet. You at least are adjacent to all of this. And here, I, I want to give you, dear listeners, I want to give you, dear Andy, the gift of one little thing that's just a whole bunch of people who just like books and want you to... Enjoy the same books that they like and do it for free. And so here you go. LibriVox, everyone. My love for this episode of Love-Hate Relationship. Thank you, sir. I mean that sincerely. Yeah, I... And I, and I, I cannot recommend it enough. Awesome, man. Well, I, I'm most certainly going to check it out. I think, I hope a few more people are as well. Um, you know, I, I, I think... We need all the good things we can get, and it's it seems very harmless and and good and coming from a place of purity, and and that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so you ready to rage? Now? Turn. I've been ready to rage for a while about what we're talking about today. <laughs> all right, uh, dear viewer, internet friend of mine, I hate the seemingly endless string of live action Disney remakes that are plaguing my cinema <laughs> right now. Alex, I, I don't often ask you questions, but I try to whenever I, I can. And I'd like to know, 
growing up, what was your favorite Disney movie? Ah, growing up. Growing up, he says. Yeah. Okay, no, that that actually does make a difference on my answer. I think if I'm going to call out my favorite Disney movie, I'm going to need to give it to a goofy movie. Oh, interesting. If we're going from when I was growing up. Okay. If we're going from me growing up. Yep, a goofy movie. As far as the movie that I just, as a kid, would watch... And I'm talking, you ask me as a kid, I'm going to be saying like 10 and under. Mm-hmm. 10 and under, like I would rewatch a goofy movie constantly. Okay. I friggin' loved the hell out of that movie. Only thing I'll say about Goofy Movie is the scene where Bigfoot smiled would scare me. <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot, voiced by the fantastic Frank Welker ah, in a goofy movie. But okay, another one of his credits. So that's that's a great answer. I I I desperately hope that a goofy movie is safe from this thing I'm here to talk about because a live action goofy would be literal nightmare fuel. Sure. <laughs> um, what? So so that that's when you were a kid. Do you have a different? You said you had a different answer now. Uh, well, let me qualify. Do you count Pixar? Um, yeah. Okay. If Pixar counts, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to cop out and I'm going to give it to Coco. Oh, very good answer. Yes. Cause Coco, I, I, I have a personal connection to as it's the, it's a movie I relate to on a very personal level, uh, given that it's the first Disney movie I've seen that respectfully represented something adjacent to the culture I grew up in. It's not the culture I grew up in, but it's adjacent to it. It's the closest I've ever gotten in a Disney movie. And there's something about the narrative of being uh, an artsy, disconnected from my family, uh, puny little kid, (laughs) guitar playing kid who doesn't fit in, but tries to make people help, like... Tries to make people think he can fit in kind of deal and expectations. And there's a whole lot in that narrative that just just gets me right in the cockles. Sure. So, <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Well, so I'm going to go. So, yeah. Goofy movie as a kid. Coco as an, as an older person. Those are two great answers, and I, I I think that you're completely safe from your favorite Disney movie being affected in, in the way I'm describing. So now, for anybody who is wondering what exactly I'm talking about, for anyone who is not necessarily up to speed with what Disney and specifically like Disney's Hollywood branch has been doing for the past couple of years. Allow me to explain way back starting in 2014, Disney started putting out movies that are just essentially live action retellings of their classic movies. You know, this started in 2014 with Maleficent, which was billed as sort of a prequel to sleeping beauty, but the entirety of Sleeping Beauty is in the second act, so for the purposes of our discussion, I will count it as a live-action Disney remake. Okay. We also have had Cinderella, The Jungle Book, Beauty and the Beast, Dumbo, 
which has just come out. And later this year, we are getting live action remakes of The Lion King and Aladdin. On top of that, there are seven other remakes in the works. And to just go through them incredibly quickly, what we have to look forward to is a Maleficent sequel, Lady and the Tramp, Mulan, a Cruella de Vil movie, Pinocchio, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Lilo and Stitch, and The Little Mermaid. All of these will be coming... What, 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 wait, 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 wait. What, wait, what kind of nightmares <laughs> await a Pinocchio live-action remake? Yeah, yeah. That is horrifying. <laughs> okay, please continue. Oh, my God. Well, I have something to tell you, but please continue your spiel. <laughs> I have been very critical of these ever since I really started noticing. You know, Maleficent came out. I saw Maleficent. I liked the first half of Maleficent. After it became a blatant Sleeping Beauty uh, remake, I was like, oh, okay, I could have done without that part. Cinderella comes out, and it's like, oh, okay, whatever, it's Cinderella. Jungle Book comes out, and I start, like, paying attention. Hey, this is this is the third movie. Like, like I can I can watch Jungle Book, the cartoon one, right now. Um, nonetheless, I saw Jungle Book. I thought it was okay. And then we got to Beauty and the Beast, which was when, like, okay, now the the red alarm lights are blaring in my mind. I saw Beauty and the Beast. I've, I've seen every one of these movies, and that's part of the problem. And Beauty and the Beast, in my opinion, added nothing to the story of any significant value. Yeah, the only thing they changed were they they added some small plot details about Belle's mother and they soft-sold the idea that LeFou was gay. <laughs> and they gave Beast a song. That's that's about it. Beauty and the Beast also broke box office records. It shattered them because of course it did. It's Beauty and the Friggin' Beast. And here's here's my deal. Here's here's what I'm so caught up about. I don't hate these Disney remakes because I see them as cheap and lazy ideas. I don't hate them because they're vapid. I hate them because I look at this this thing Disney is putting out, this product, and I find it equal parts maniacal and just dumb. Mm-hmm. And... To, to to really just delve into this, I want to talk specifically about Lion King. The Lion King movie is coming out in, in June, I want to say. And okay. it is one of my absolute two favorite movies. I would submit to you that The Lion King is the GOAT Disney movie. The greatest Disney movie of all time. Okay. I don't necessarily agree, but I understand. Continue. Sure. Here, here's... here's what it really boils down to Lion King came out in 1995 for 25 years. Disney has been pushing that version of the Lion King through movies, through re-releases, through sequels, through TV shows, through theme park paraphernalia, pushing this one representation of the story down our throats. There okay. is the Lion King on Broadway and I love The Lion King on Broadway. I think The Lion King on Broadway sure. is an entirely different artistic thing. Mo- mainly 
because it is on Broadway. It is a play. It is a different medium. The Lion King 2019 is a movie and it is going to be a CGI live action movie. But beyond that, Mm. it's going to be the same. If it's not the same, I will eat my hat. Like if if it is different from a story perspective in any significant way, I will eat a DVD of, of, Lion King one and a half and I will film it and I will put it on Twitter because it isn't going to be. And that's what I hate about this. They're remaking their own movies and they won't change anything about them because they're Disney they're, they're This isn't, this isn't another studio making the Lion King and maybe you get a different version. This, uh, this isn't, this isn't Andy Serkis coming out with his own version of The Jungle Book. This is Disney remaking Disney's The Lion King. And and specifically in that, having James Earl Jones reprise his, vol- his role of Mufasa. <laughs> Understanding that that's the role that so many people know James Earl Jones from. And any other choice would feel lesser? I don't know. I would posit that because... You know, the trailer has been out for a week or two at time of recording, so it's been out for a while. You can go look at the latest Lion King trailer where you actually hear Chua. Hold on, let me pause and say this guy's name right, because I'll feel bad if I don't. Chiwetel Ejiofor. Okay. You you can watch the new trailer and hear Chiwetel Ejiofor as Scar giving dialogue, mm-hmm. and... Sure. Maybe I'm a big old Jeremy Irons fanboy, but there's something kind of off about it. And like, that's why, well, well, go on, go ahead. Well, okay. So I, I, I uh, I'm going to do the thing that I hate that people do, which is I'm going to like play this from the side of Disney. Incredible conglomerate, evil, <laughs> terrible corporation, Disney from their side. Good, because I thought we had a problem for a minute there, huh? All right, now get out there and make me some goddamn money. In Beauty and the Beast, they corrected. You're right. They added a little bit about Belle's mom to what narrative interest I don't necessarily know. They did soft up this thing with LeFou, and it was so milk toast um, and very disappointing. They did do one thing which is they corrected a giant plot hole in Beauty and the Beast, which is the prince being 10 years old in the original when he's cursed. And in the remake, they made him a full-grown adult. So they corrected something that had been pointed out for a very long time as a problematic aspect of the story. Mm. In the new remake of The Lion King, they are doing something that they received much praise for when they did it in Moana, which is they cast people of color for a story in a place where the native populations are people of color. Sure, okay. And in The Lion King, you look at the cast of The Lion King, okay, John Oliver is Zazu, Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner are Timon and Pumbaa, if I remember correctly. But then 
they have a whole bunch of people with African ancestry. Granted, a lot of them are African American, and sure, there's a really troubling thing of conflating African American with African, but it is it is a step towards addressing that issue. Now, are, is Disney doing it because they legitimately care about African representation in the African American community and promoting the diversity of its own casts? Fuck no! I promise you, Bob Iger doesn't give a shit about any of that. Not even a little bit. It's profitable. But is it a bad thing? I don't know. I like Jeremy Irons a lot. Don't get me wrong. But you cast Chiwetelichia for, who has more than proven his chops as a villainous actor. I don't know that I'm necessarily that mad about that. Outside of the fact that I really, really enjoy Jeremy Irons' Scar, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And and you know what? That is a good, fair point that I had not thought about. I, I agree with you that it is 100% coincidental to the context of the era it's being made in. But you know mm-hmm. what? If, if somebody goes and sees the new Lion King and is able to relate to a character better, okay, I'm I'm glad to be shown that there can be some good to come out of this. And and to your point, I I don't think that I don't think necessarily that anyone in the new version is going to be better or worse than anyone in the old version. The problem I see and this is why I I said that Disney is a little dumb for doing this with all these movies. Specifically, you know, there is such a thing as the golden age of Disney animation. That is a title. And that is the early 90s, the early to mid 90s. That's when they pumped out Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and Little Mermaid. Sure. They've baked in the story being told a certain way. And, you know, Mm -hmm. specifically our generation are used to seeing it in a certain way. And I just feel Mm -hmm. like if you're going to remake it and you're not going to change anything, jungle book changed a little bit. Jungle book actually changed more than beauty and the beast. And I'm actually fine with the jungle book reboot remake. Um, But you know, look at beauty and the beast. If you're only going to change a couple tiny plot elements, nothing majorly significant, except maybe a plot hole or two. Let's assume mm-hmm. they're going to do that with all their other popular ones, with Lion King, with Aladdin. You're remaking the, the same exact way. You're just showing it in a new visual style. So it's going to look different and it's going to sound different, but it's going to be the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. I I can't square that. And like, I'm going to see it. Of course I am. It's Lion King. But I think Disney runs a risk of alienating the fan after they've seen the movie by having something just be slightly different, slightly off. And at the same time, I don't think Disney cares if they're going to alienate the fan at the end of the movie because they've already got your money. And that's where I think this is completely just brilliantly evil of, of Mm -hmm. Disney, the company They're playing on the nostalgia of a certain generation and, you know, getting butts in seats and breaking box office records because 
of nostalgia. And sure. eh, I don't like that. I hate that. I think it's yeah. I think it's wicked if you're not at least going to put forward something different. You can't just you you could just re-release the movie and you know digitally fix the animation and I think that would still make money but they're going to make more money if they subtly change the visual style and I just I don't know my my wife and I got into the biggest not quite a fight but the biggest argument we've ever gotten to about a film because she is like 100% on board excited for this and I've been giving the trailer shit on Twitter and mm-hmm. I I don't know if I'm just being a total dick on this one or or not, but I just I don't like it. I I'm not gonna see Aladdin. That has to do with a couple other reasons, namely it looks fucking bad. You, you hate Guy Ritchie. <laughs> and I hate, and you Guy, hate Ritchie. Guy Ritchie. And I'm not ready for um, anyone other than Robin Williams to be the genie. Sure. Okay. So I, I'm I think I am in your camp okay. on this, but for different reasons, if that makes sense. Because, and, and I love that you mentioned Mariah on this, because I was talking to Stephanie about this topic. You know, we, we, we talked about, like, movies we would not want to see remade, uh, which is why I mentioned Pinocchio earlier, because I, I, we were talking about that. I'm like, Pinocchio would be nightmares to remake. Like, there's no version of Pinocchio well, it, that would it, not look like a Chucky doll. It has right uh, done in live action animation. It, it will be sometime after 2020. <laughs> God help us. And if they redo The Little Mermaid, it's basically going to yeah, be Aquaman yeah, have to be. animation, isn't it? Like, they're going to use the same technology they used for Aquaman in order to do The Little Mermaid. And so so here's the thing. On the one hand, the, I, I, look at, I look at this as a question of Michael Eisner versus Bob Iger. So for those who don't know, Michael Eisner was pre- was the CEO of Disney from 1984 until 2005. In 2005, Bob Iger stepped into the role. You don't need to know much about either of them. But I, I want to point out that in the era of Eisner, Eisner made it a point to... Eisner really wanted to spearhead a new era of Disney classics. Eisner was like... Okay, so before me, we basically had this period of time where we were churning out things like like Pinocchio, like Peter Pan, like uh, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and all these Disney classics. And right now we're basically marketing those classics to generation after generation of kids and trying to come out with new crap. And most <laughs> of the new crap sucks. Like 70s Disney that's fair, yeah. Was not great. Walt Disney Productions, the cat from outer space. I'm serious. A lot of 60s Disney was bad. Like, case in point, it's very hard for me to name very many of those movies. When Eisner took over, that's when he started investing in certain creative minds. He, he brought... And he brought in a lot of people to try and spearhead new kinds of projects. And that's what gave us things like Aladdin, The Lion King, The Little Mermaid. All, all of these things that, like, when we were growing up, those were our Disney movies. Yes, you knew that there, were the, there was the older stuff. You knew that was there. God knows they, like, intermingled the marketing there. But it felt of a different era. Cinderella felt different from 
The Little Mermaid in so many ways. And, and uh, but, but but it but Eisner was invested in doing that. And since then it's all kind of become one jumble. I'd be very interested to know what the kids nowadays kind of think of a lot of those older movies. But in this newer era, you got Bob Iger and what does Bob Iger have? He can either play Eisner and try and invest in a new generation of these things, or he can play the short game, which he knows is going to be profitable. And that's a big problem here. This shit is profitable. Beauty and the Beast did break those records. It's the same, and it's the same reason why friggin' Suicide Squad made $700 million. And so many people talk about hating it. It doesn't matter if it's good, as long as people buy the tickets. That's why Michael Bay has a career. We talked about this during our Vapid Movie Reboots episode, which, which we want to make a point is distinct from this. But it's profitable. Bob Iger has a reason for doing this, and it's profitable. Because here's what happens. He can now market both. He can take old Lion King, and he can take new Lion King. And he can go, all right, those of you who remember old Lion King, I can market you all the old Lion King stuff. And you're going to buy tickets to the new Lion King. Those of you who are little kids right now seeing new Lion King, this is going to be your Lion King. Sure. No, he makes his money way. either way. And I, and I agree with and, and I don't like that because I would rather a new era of Eisner. I would rather that Michael Eisner level of let's bring in the talent, let's create the new stuff. In a big way, Pixar seems to be doing most of that heavy lifting. Case in point, I just told you Coco is my favorite Disney movie as an adult. Right. But that's a Pixar oh, movie. Oh, yeah. Huh. You know, what's Iger got? Iger, Iger's got Pixar and he's got Frozen. Uh, Princess and the Frog did not do that well. And that was the last of the like old school animation Disney movies that they've done. Right. Now it's all computer generated. Now, you know, and, and, and now their energy is in a different place. I don't know if Iger's ever going to invest heavily in new stuff. God knows Frozen, Frozen was something new and it made them their money. But Pixar's still making them their money and now they can take this. Now they can do this with their older properties and try and basically milk them. Whether or not they're good isn't the point. You hope they're good. You, you tell me, I didn't see the Jungle Book remake. Um, you tell me you liked it. Okay. If you don't like the Lion King remake, you still bought a ticket. You tell me you're not going to see the Aladdin remake, but of the seven that you said are going to be in production, are there any of those you're going to see? You know, I actually don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrified I'm I'm terrified of a live action Lilo and Stitch for much the same reason as a live action Pinocchio. I'm I'm staring at the list. Um, I probably won't see Mulan for much the same reasons as Aladdin. I I dearly love the original animated Mulan, and I I mean I I don't know. And the remake in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and uh, I would have to see the cast. I I eh, yeah I. I, I, I don't know. And I think one guy sticking his foot in the sand and not buying tickets isn't going to be even a drop in the bucket, I guess. And, and I'll make this my final word. I, I very much fall in the same camp as you. And I worry about 
if this trend continues, which it looks like it's it's going to be going strong for at least the next five, ten years, if this trend continues, I don't want us to lose Coco. I don't want us to lose Moana. Those are two phenomenal movies and two of better of, of Disney slash Pixar's better offerings of the past decade, I would argue. And I don't want to see those not get made because we're remaking Hercules and we don't need to take the risk of a new story. We let's take the safe money. Let's give the people the shiny new coat of paint. And that sucks. You know, that sucks for the Mm. same reasons we talked about with the vapid movies. Like, like I'm always going to be on the side of originality and a new idea and taking a risk. And this is very much, in my opinion, an attack on that. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. and the thing is, their bets are hedged because they own Marvel, they own Star Wars, they own twenty, they they got twentieth Century Fox now. So what's it? And there's two sides of that. It, one side is okay, we can afford to take risks because we know that you know our we know we've got this many Marvel movies that are going to pull in this much money. So maybe let's take a risk and do a weird ass Disney animated movie. But the other side of that is those risks have not been the thing that have made them so profitable. Now they paid off. Yes. But it's, you know, you know, I put this the same way that there are people who like say that when Xbox makes a mistake, it's going to bring Microsoft down. And it's like, no, Microsoft is still selling how many copies of their corporate suites to companies every single year. Microsoft doesn't give a shit about what happens to Xbox and whether or not you like Xbox's games. That's like on page seven of their ledger reports. Disney probably could give a shit about some of this, but I think it depends on, you know, who their creatives end up being. So I would encourage you, you don't want these live action remakes, don't buy the tickets. Just even if you're like wondering if you're going to see it, just don't buy the ticket, dude. (laughs) If you hate it this much, don't buy the damn ticket. Let Mariah go on her own or with friends. Mariah and Ryan can go see. (laughs) Actually, no, in fairness, there's some of these remakes that I might be interested in seeing. Uh, I would totally be down for a Hunchback of Notre Dame remake because I think that the animated movie had better ideas than execution in a lot of ways and i would like to see what a second pass would do but that's besides the point sure you know well no i I think that's a very good point and it goes for me and it goes for everybody your dollars are the the strongest vote you can have with anything nowadays so uh i i will not (laughs) ever see the live action aladdin movie and that is my that's my line in the sand. But thank you for thank you for helping okay. me talk this out and 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 just just help the people learn about a thing that I I deeply disagree with. Do you want to get into the question? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Uh, shall I read or shall you? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Hi, Alex. They don't even acknowledge you. They just say hi to me. I'm hoping that this qualifies for a relationship. I'm not totally sure, but I'm going to try anyway. I'm an enormous Michael Jackson fan. Like, saved my life, will argue he's the GOAT musician of all time, eh. Uh, have all of the albums pretty much committed to memory kind of fan. 
As such, I've done a really good job of separating the art from the artist for basically my whole life. I'm old enough to just barely remember the old 90s allegations, and always kind of just let those sit in a box in my brain. After watching Leaving Neverland, though, I'm officially having a crisis of conscience. I'm assuming you guys have seen it, uh, new, no, and know that the shit those kids went through is so horrifying, and he was so evil to them that I basically haven't been able to listen to him since. That said, when his songs come on the radio, or out IRL, they literally wrote IRL, uh, I still want to bob my head and rock to it, though. How can I have a relationship with this music, with this dude, after knowing what he's done and seeing the faces of his victims like that? Thanks, Ben. And I'm assuming that Ben is in relation to the Michael Jackson song, Ben. Which is a great song, by the way. Yeah, it's a good call sign, if nothing else. Yeah. 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 So um, I'll start out by disclaiming, uh, no, I also have not seen Leaving Neverland. I I made sure to research the whole thing after this came into our, our purview. Um, so I do feel qualified to speak on it but i have not actually seen the documentary i have not either i heard a lot of takes on it uh after it came out i've been meaning to see it but yeah i i haven't uh, i'm gonna be completely honest about that yeah so um but we're both familiar with what occurs in it for reference to everyone out there uh, leaving neverland is an hbo documentary uh which sits down with i believe two of the Folks that have been, I guess I should say, allegedly uh, molested by Michael Jackson uh, when they were children. And it gets dark. There's a lot of discussion of grooming, uh, of the kind of relationship he fostered with these kids. Um, definitely kind of some like financial manipulation involving their families. And a lot of people have had your reaction to this, Ben. You, you are not alone. A lot of people who I know to be huge Michael Jackson fans uh, have talked about the effect that this has had on them. So first and foremost, you are not alone in having these complicated feelings. Yeah. So, so I'm going to try to help you in two different ways. The first is to talk about the documentary and bring up the fact that, frankly, a documentary is not factually damning. You know, there you, you made the point of bringing up the fact that legally one would have to say the victims are the alleged victims. And, mm. you know, a lot of people have been reacting strongly to leaving Neverland and, and publicly, you know, making their, their cutting of ties with anything Michael Jackson known. A lot of other people have turned on his music and been listening to it. Like his track figures have gone up on Spotify since this documentary came out. And a lot of people are just talking about the fact that I don't believe this. You know, a do uh, the documentary itself, any documentary, is made with a point of view. I, I believe that's one of the things that 
distinguishes a documentary from, say, news. And even news, most of the time, is spoken with a point of view. Dan Reed, the director and producer of Leaving Neverland, had a specific point of view and a specific story he wanted to pitch to you, the viewer. And I think it would be a very messy argument to try and get into his motivations because of course how can his motivations be anything other than pure well he's making money off of this the victims aren't but he is and furthermore the victims wade robson and james safechuck are suing the jackson estate i remember when michael jackson died because up until that point he was a figure of criticism he was a, he he was you know it was a it was a time where you made jokes about michael jackson being a pedophile and then he died and the documentary came out the next week about michael jackson's life and what an amazing artist he was and i can recall just seeing public opinion do a complete 180 and michael jackson reclaiming this good pr to the point where of course he couldn't have done anything and and oh wasn't he one of the greatest artists musicians of all time and i i I say all this just to remind you ben the documentary does not prove it's true and if that's something you need to square this circle then that this is me giving you the peg for that it sounds like you do believe this documentary and that is incredibly fair and i'm not going to advocate that it's true or not true either way i just want to help you think critically about it i would listen to our david bowie episode if you haven't seriously because you know we discussed this to a lesser extent about how do you separate music from artist when artist can do some horrible things and i think we touch on a lot in there that would be helpful you know talking about bowie's sexual problems and how i myself can continue to you know sing ashes to ashes whenever it come whenever i hear it come out i want to give alex a chance to speak but art and i very much believe this art does not belong to the artist after it is released art belongs to the consumer so i have a different approach to your question ben uh and and i'm gonna start off by saying first and foremost uh and i think i speak for andy when i say this as well one should never feel ashamed or troubled by believing an accuser or a victim ever no i i yeah, there's there is too much defense of evil that exists out there. There's too much defense of very bad behavior by very powerful people to ever feel an ounce of guilt for wanting to side with these young men. I am also an enormous Michael Jackson fan. And I I am speaking in present tense there. I, his music is also, for me, life-saving. I have listened to all of his albums all the way through. He is so important to me. 
I also personally uh, believe the allegations are true. I think that he really did do these things to these children. I think that he also did these things probably to more children. I think that he was not ethically a good person. And I think that he did a lot of evil in the world. And I'm not convinced that the amount of good that his art is absolves him of that responsibility. I have made the practical choice in my own life, in my own personal mindset, uh, in the way that I choose to be a conscious consumer of media, to continue to listen to him. And a big part of that is the fact that he's dead, because I don't really mind if his estate gets money from me, from my streaming it on Spotify or, or on Pandora. I, that doesn't bother me. I, I got no qualms with the estate of Michael Jackson, um, other than the fact that they are, you know, not exactly on the side of these accusers, but, you know, that's, I get that. I also believe Michael Jackson suffered a lot, and that doesn't excuse any of the behavior that I, again, believe that he did. That I truly, as a fan of his and as someone who spent a lot of that time uh, researching his life and reviewing these cases before this documentary, which, again, I have not seen this documentary, but I am familiar with everything he's done, and I believe the allegations. Because he's dead and can't directly profit from it, I have made the conscious choice for my personal life to continue to listen to his music. I don't do the same thing for someone like Bill Cosby, who admittedly I was never a huge fan of, but he's still alive. And even if he's in prison, he I don't want him to profit. If I want to watch a Woody Allen movie, I'm going to pirate it because I don't want to give Woody Allen my money. I don't want to give Woody Allen my support. I like Woody Allen movies. I don't pretend I don't, but I believe that in the things that he has done, I believe his accusers, and I don't want to support him financially. So I'm going to unethically consume his media. I'm going to steal his shit so that he cannot, so that I can enjoy it, but so that he cannot profit from it. That is my personal approach to this. So I say to you, if you earnestly you need to look at where you are in relation to this music. You need to look at where you are in relation to this person, both what he has done for you in your life and what he could potentially continue to do for you. The only thing, and, and if you decide after doing that, that you are okay with consuming his media and believing that he did these things, you are not a bad person for that, Ben. You are not an evil person for making the conscious decision to say, this music is important to me. This music was important to my childhood. This music, and, and music can, art absolutely can be formative to us. It can be the kind of thing that would save our lives. I can name songs that saved my life. Literally, not, not being overdramatic there stopped me from doing terrible things. I can name those songs, and Michael Jackson songs are among those songs. I will always owe that. And the one thing that you are not allowed to do is keep your eyes closed and not think about these things. Because at that point, you are ethically compromised. You know what you need to know.
you can review the facts and choose to decide that you don't believe he did these things. I don't think I'd be I don't think I'd be mad at you about that. You can do what Andy is talking about here and look into these things, ask these questions. That's there's nothing wrong with doing that. But you can't have closed eyes. So you ask us very specifically, how can you have a relationship with the music, with this dude, after knowing what he's done and seeing the faces of his victims like that? The way you do that is consciously, is with open eyes and making a conscious decision. That might involve a break. Maybe you don't listen to his stuff for a little while and then maybe you see if you can come back to it, but you can't avoid it. Stuff's still playing everywhere. Andy, when's the last time you heard a Michael Jackson song out and about? Oh, it couldn't have been more than a week. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure I was in I was in uh, an ice cream store yesterday. And uh, Smooth Criminal came on while I was waiting for them to give me my milkshake. I can groove to Smooth Criminal, but you're not going to get away from it. You're just not. Period. So the way you do it is, I would say, confront it directly. Read up more on this. There are more documentaries out there. There are documentaries on Michael Jackson's side. Uh, I remember a great VH1 documentary that left the question of whether or not he had committed the molestation ambiguous. It kind of left it as a, we don't know, maybe, maybe not. It had interviews with people who defended him and interviews with people who were accusing him and presented it very one-to-one. But the major point of the documentary had been talking about his childhood and the abuse he suffered, and the fact that he was more or less chemically castrated by his father, which was a real thing that happened, and his body dysmorphia, and all of these real sympathetic issues for him. Again, I have all of that in my head when I make this consideration. I don't consider them excuses for what I truly believe he did, but they're part of the narrative. This shit's going to be complicated. So I think this is a case where more knowledge is going to be better than less. We're confronting more of him with the active mind of making a decision about whether or not this is something you can do in your own heart is on the table for you. And your mind can change, too. Andy, I've been talking for a while. You got something to say? <laughs> oh, I mean, I was going to say, you know, um, I think that's all incredibly eloquent and well-spoken. You know, Oh, I, thanks. <laughs> I just... My my biggest thing is I I agree with you that the only thing you can't do is put your head in the sand on the issue. And it is acceptable and okay, Ben, to believe he did these things and still want to enjoy his music. Because music especially... Like, I, I don't believe it belongs to anyone other than you once it comes into your ears and, and affects you in whatever way it affects you. And, th- and that way it affects you could be different than in how it affects other people, and that is what makes it yours. You know, if you want to dance around to Michael Jackson, I think dance around, and if someone gives you a stink eye, then that's more their problem than yours. And I would encourage you to not worry too much about what anyone else might think of you for continuing to enjoy 
and 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 I, I I love that you brought up this point, Alex. A dead man's music, like we talked about voting dollars this episode, and you know it. Even if you were to buy a Michael Jackson record, I'm looking at the one I got my wife for Christmas. You know that money is not going to directly affect the person who may have done these terrible things. And I hope that provides you some solace. My last word on it is, you know, if you want to feel a little okay about whatever side of the coin you land on, at least it's better than what Barbara Streisand said about this, which was, and I quote, his sexual needs were his sexual needs and the accusers were thrilled to be there. They were both married and have children, so it didn't kill them. Whew. However you... uh, Holy shit. Yeah. Holy shit. She has since apologized because of fucking course she has, but like, oh my god, that's a bad take. So, however you fall on this issue, uh, as long as you're not sitting there going, yes, Michael abused these people but they don't matter. <laughs> I think you're going to be okay. Yeah. I, you, the, I, I, I think that's really well put Andy. Um, God, where the hell is Robert Smith when you need him? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh, let's use some tension. Um, that's a great last word. Um, and Ben, honestly, my last word on the subject is this. All your favorites are problematic. Every damn one of them. Except Mr. Rogers and Bob Ross, there were no good people 100% of the way. I promise you that. And there will always be someone who asks you, how could you draw the line there? Where do you draw the line? There's a false dichotomy of it's either all okay or none of it's okay. And that's a bullshit dichotomy. You draw the line where you choose to draw the line. I don't listen to Gigi Allen music, even though he's dead, because I find him to be completely repulsive and completely lacking in any redeeming qualities. Never m- I, And it's not just the fact that he sexually assaulted people on stage, but that's part of it. I draw my line on Gigi Allen... I have I have Michael Jackson on another part of this line, but if anyone ever asked me, how could you listen to Michael Jackson with, with knowing knowing what he's done? I have my answer, and my answer is what I just said to you. Like my answer is all the research I've done, all the knowledge I have, the conscious decision I have made, the fact that he is dead, and those things matter to me and. At the end of the day, it's what is it for you as an individual consumer? You don't have to justify shit to anybody else. You just have to justify it to yourself intelligently and mindfully. So learn your shit and make your call that way. And don't feel bad wherever you lie on that. You don't need to feel any shame. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for your question, Ben. You know, um... If you, listener, internet friend, have your own question, your own relationship problem, and, you know, I'm pretty sure 
Ben was questioning if this counted. I, I feel like this one counted. I feel like this was absolutely I'm good. a I was good with this. question. So if you have yeah, I was good with this. a relationship question or a problem with a loved one, friend, coworker, pet, or whatever you want to qualify what we just talked about. Problematic yeah. favorite. Yeah, problematic favorite. There you go. You know, you can send those into lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, we would also love it if you reviewed us on any and all of those. We've gotten a few new uh, iTunes or Apple Podcast reviews, Thank which you. are lovely and thoroughly appreciated. So please bring those in. It helps people find the podcast. Please share us around. Uh, you can also tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. With your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes or see Andy tweeting about how angry he is about the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, not yeah, doing we, so hot. We, uh, I, I, jinxes are real, and I, I, oh my god, if I could go back and not do that and not jinx the Lightning. Uh, Correlation would, does not equal causation. They, they had the... They had the single greatest upset in hockey history, so that was fun. Anyway, <laughs> if you wanna if you wanna see more of my pain or watch me root for the Colorado Avalanche, my backup team, <laughs> you can do so by finding me on Twitter at JovoCop2113. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R U I Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, guys. This one got, like, light, then heavier, and then really heavy. So uh, we absolutely appreciate you. Uh, as always, uh, please tell your enemies. <laughs> <laughs>